Amen. You can have a seat. Um, I was sitting here thinking um, as we were singing that, and thanks, Cam, for bringing that new song to us. Um, I was sitting here thinking that this has been a season um, where um, I sort of lose sight so easily of those truths, the problems, the struggles of my own heart just get bigger, um, and those truths get eclipsed by it, and not only singing that, but hearing you sing it um, causes my heart to believe afresh and anew. Um, We often say that worship is both expressive and formative, that, um, that as we sing together, as Colossians tells us, God makes the word dwell richly in our hearts, and so you've done that for me. It is, um, and it is. It was necessary. I needed that. So thank you. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of First Peter. If you're uh, with us, um, maybe for the first time and aren't familiar with the Bible or don't have a Bible, or if you're online watching us and don't have a Bible, we would love to get you access to God's Word. So we'll send you one free of charge if you'll email me. Um, or if you're here, just drop a note in the offering plate with your address, and we'll get you um, a copy of the Bible for your own, because this is God's Word. So we're going to look at um, at First Peter chapter two, starting with verse thirteen, and then reading through the end of the chapter. This is, as I said, God's Word to us today. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if? When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." This is God's word. Would you join with me as we ask his blessing on his word preached? Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we need you to break into our unbelief. 
instruct us where we are unwise, shape us where we have been misshapen, drive out the evil one who would love to deceive and speak redemptively with power in our lives so that we would leave here saying, God has changed me. I have become different. That is a work of your grace, your gracious power towards us in our sin. And so unleash your redemption. Here we pray as we come to your word. Amen. Well, um, Jesus had said um, repeatedly, my kingdom is not of this world. His expectations as the Messiah was that he would establish an earthly rule, drive out the Romans. And so he said, my kingdom is not of this world. But much of the political discourse amongst Jesus's people seems to be at times marrying the kingdom of Jesus with the kingdom of this world. But Peter reminds his readers, his followers of Jesus, these churches in Asia Minor that he's writing to, he reminds us today that our identity in Christ and in this world, he doesn't expect his people to retreat from the world, but to engage and live in this world. But with this key identity, you are sojourners and aliens. And that's imagery that is ripe from the Old Testament, imagery that had been defining God's people for a very long time and is imagery that is designed to help us navigate this world a little bit better. Because sojourners are people who are living in a home country that is not their home country. They, they're, they're sojourning through, they have found themselves living in a place that is not their home for a long period of time. And exiles, sojourners and exiles, exiles are people who live in a foreign land that is hostile to them. Those are those two imageries. This is for the people of God. You belong to Jesus Christ who's seated in the heavens and is coming again. And so you're sojourning. But like the exiles in ancient Israel, you're living in a land that is hostile to you as well. And that creates some tension. Because sojourners and exiles aren't at home, but sojourners and exiles live in such a way to bless the home of others. We've been talking the last two weeks about our posture with those we find ourselves in disagreement with. Because now we're going into a section of Peter where he is addressing how we live in this world with those who are hostile towards us. What is our posture, not just to each other when we disagree, but what should our posture be towards the world in which we find ourselves? Particularly in the next two weeks, Peter is going to be dealing with our posture to those who are in authority. Because the Bible is very concerned with everyday life. It always gets down and dirty. It always starts to poke around in our hearts and lives. You will never find God's word to be either safe or ethereal. Up here, not down here. God's word always comes down here, but when the Bible goes from theology to practice, which it always does, we are quicker 
to argue and quicker to be dismissive. And that is what Peter is doing. Peter's going to use a word that's going to rub many of us the wrong way. It kind of cuts against our cultural assumptions as well as the natural disposition of our hearts. He uses the word submission. And he's going to leave no relationship untouched. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And the Greek he uses here is, a, is even more pointed because we translate every human institution with what is really in the original language, every human creature. And his framework is God has put people over you. They are just human creatures, but you are to be subject to him. In verse 13, it's the government that he is concerned with, the emperors and the governors. In verse 16, it's servants to masters. What in today's world would we translate as employees to employers, recognizing that in God's economy, we are meant to live under authority. He reminds them in verse 16 of this. Live as people who are free. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You are free in Christ from sin and free in Christ to submission. When God sets us free in Christ, we are free to be subject to every human institution. So the word that Peter uses for subject really means something stronger. I think this particular translation of the Bible is, is sort of toning it down a little bit. Oftentimes, it is the word that is translated as submission. In fact, as we will see next week, he uses this word subject and obey interchangeably as equals because submission really requires a freedom from self. If you think about it, submission, and you've realized this, if you have children, it's a freedom, a submission is not when you are in agreement with someone. Submission is often when someone asks you to do something that you don't want to do, and every household needs to run with that kind of order in place. I know you don't want to do this, but I, as your father, am telling you, you need to do this. Submission is precisely for when we don't agree it's either when we don't like it or we don't agree with it. If we all agreed on everything and could easily arrive at the same conclusion, we wouldn't even need a word like submit in our vocabulary. But submission is essential for a well-ordered world. And as Peter is going to remind us, it brings rich blessings in God's economy. Because subjection for Jesus' people, verse 13, is always for the Lord's sake. And Lord is, is the apostle's favorite title for Jesus. It's his kingly ruler language. Because God, the Father, has put all things in subjection, same word, submission, under the feet of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. He's ruler over all things, and all things are in submission to him. That means that there is one ruler over all things who is the judge of all things, verse 23. And so to be submissive to the governing rulers and our employers is not because 
first of their credibility or our agreement with him, but is always for the Lord's sake. Because the one who rules over all creation because of his obedience, even to death on our behalf, has been rewarded with kingship and sits in heaven ruling over all things and has been given all power and authority. And he has, as our king, called us to live in submission to every human institution that he has put over us, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or governors ruling or masters, our employers. Because these men and women are his servants and should be acknowledged as such, even if they do not acknowledge Jesus in this way. Because the Lord throughout history has always used evil men to accomplish his good purposes. He strikes straight lines with crooked sticks. He, he uses what men and women mean for evil to accomplish what the Lord means for good. This is the master judo move of the God who is sovereign. He is not thwarted by the evil intentions of men or women. And so joyful submission only works if you keep your focus on the Lord Jesus and are reminded of his goodness towards you. Because his use of power and authority was never for his own gain, but for the gain of those who were in active rebellion against him. That's the nature of our hearts. It's not simply that we just don't see, but that in our natural disposition, we are rebels against God. I've said this before, you have to teach your children to walk, to use the bathroom, to eat their food, but you don't have to teach them to rebel against you. That comes out naturally. It would be nice if you had to teach them that and you could just skip that lesson. But Peter reminds us in verse 24 that Jesus' disposition towards those who were rebels was this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. And so we're to submit to every human institution for the Lord's sake. There's an asterisk here, though, because there needs to be some limits on our call to submit. For instance, in Acts 4 and 5, the leadership of Jerusalem arrest the apostles and put them in jail and strictly charge them not to preach Jesus. And their answer is, we must obey God rather than men. Likewise, in the Old Testament, as we saw in our reading today, as the world was growing hostile to the Israelites, to God's people... They were multiplying amidst the hostility is always what happens in God's hands. Pharaoh meant it for evil. God was like, watch what I'll do. And Israel expands. They're threatened by the military might of Israel. So they're going to kill off the boys. And the midwives say, not under my watch. And they deceive Pharaoh. There's, there are times when the servants of God, the governing leaders, go against the revealed will of God. And as a servant of King Jesus, you need to go against 
the governing leaders. But that's a different sermon. That's another topic. Because here's what we do. We focus on the asterisk, and we miss some of the rich life of holiness that Peter is calling us to in submission. Because remember, the same Peter who's writing this is the same man who was thrown into prison for the gospel and the same man who in a matter of years would be crucified by the emperor that he is telling us to obey and honor. We must joyfully submit as unto the Lord. But more than joyfully submit to the governing authorities, verse 17, honor the emperor. To honor means to treat something as inherently valuable. To say that has got a value and a worth that needs to be treated with honor. The command is much richer, though, than just simply honor the emperor. It is this. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. As often the case, I think we reverse these two emotions. It's a subtle shift. happens with a great deal of impact on our, our lives because in much of our political discourse, we fear the holders of political power, and we honor God. And that is what gets the bulk of our attention and emotion. It becomes the real source of our fear and thus our security. We're afraid of the next political election. There's not a person in this room who is not feeling some level of anxiety. And most of our level of anxiety is read about the upcoming election. And it does not matter on what side of the aisle you find yourself. You might not admit that you're afraid, but all the emotions associated with fear are present. Anxiety, the need to fight, if-then arguing, if this happens, then this happens, attacking others that don't see politics the same way. Why do we think, why do we need to attack our brothers and sisters and accuse them? Because we think, we might not admit it, but in our heart of hearts we think ultimate things are at stake. Look, God is much better object of fear than whoever is in political office. Whatever political party, whatever human being is in political office, God is a much better object of fear. He is the only sovereign one who is in complete control. He is the only one who can execute his plans in this world without any hiccup or distraction. And in him there is no shadow or deceit, and he cannot change. The same yesterday, today, and forever, and is worthy of trust. Do you want to know who God is? He has revealed himself faithfully in the word, and he's not going to change. He's not going to say one thing and do another. And he's laid out his intentions in Christ, so you know his agenda. His agenda is to redeem that which sin has broken in this world through the gracious intervention of Jesus who died the death we could not die, lived the life we could never live, bore the wrath that we deserve so that we might be brought as outsiders into his kingdom and made sons and daughters under his benevolent reign. You know his agenda. 
And he cares for the little man. He cares for the vulnerable. He cares for the weak. He is so much worthy of our fear. And I fear that too often we're trying to craft a kingdom of this world with the weapons of this world because we've lost our identity as aliens and sojourners. Politics cannot be our ultimate. They can be important. They can't be our ultimate. They should be important, but they can never take the place of ultimate joy or peace, and they should not be a place of division for those who sit under Jesus and cling to him. It's also a recognition that the vote and the voice are not the ultimate deciders. Fear God who puts leaders in their place and will take them out at his choosing and is the only one who truly governs the course of history. That then, I think, gives us a better template or a posture that then gives us a template in verse 17 for our political interactions. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's a much better template for our political interactions because one of the great challenges in applying the Bible is to take principles that are given in one culture and apply them to a different historical context and a different culture. And we have an opportunity in our governmental system that Peter could never have imagined, a voice and a vote. The average person can speak up. We can criticize our government leaders. We can disagree with their policies. That is an amazing freedom. But as Peter reminds us, don't use any of your freedoms as a cover-up for evil. Those with whom we use our voice and vote still need to be treated with honor. And I'm afraid that most of the way we talk about our rulers would destroy any of our relationship if that person was our friend. And if our children talked to us that way, they would be on the receiving end of discipline. We have to remember how Peter starts this chapter. Because those whom we disagree, we may have a voice, but that voice needs to be used in a way that honors. But we also need to remember how Peter starts this chapter. Verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. His slander is to make false or unverified accusations about someone that damages their reputation. In much of our political discourse, this is precisely what we are attempting to do. The goal is to discredit the person, not their position, not their policies, because that's easy pickings. It's easier if we can just discredit the person to get them and their policies off the table, but it's also cheap interaction. And we need to hear this Christian spreading conspiracy theories is a form of slander and is as far away from honor as we can get. Whether the person is on social media, in our friendships, it borders on slander when we just share. I'm just sharing this. 
and that they may not be faithful. We're not taking the efforts. Is this verified? Is this true? Most of the stuff can be easily verified. Are we taking the steps to fact check what we share? You may not like an official. You may deeply disagree with their policy, which should always be the case with God's people. We should never find ourselves 100% on board with every and any ruler unless that ruler is Jesus. But in a context where we have a voice and a vote, we need to honor and be careful that we don't slander. Instead, the speech of God's people should be seasoned with the salt of grace and truth so that honor comes out of our mouths, even when we disagree with voice and vote. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Lastly, Peter gives us a new category for engaging in our submission. Because he gets us looking forward. Right? As I confessed, my tendency is to make the present the ultimate. I lose my horizon. And he says, let's look forward and let the world to come shape our submission to the rulers in this world. Because Peter's just concerned pastorally. I'm trying to lengthen your horizon. We can't just look at the present circumstances alone so that they become ultimate. And you'll remember that one of the principles of the human heart is that what we behold, we become. Likewise, what we spend most of our time looking at will eventually become our ultimate. And so pastorally, Peter wants the horizon to become the new heavens and new earth. That is the most ultimate reality. Jesus is there. And everything in that place has been put right. There will be no more living as sojourners and exiles. We will be home. And if our present circumstances seem so huge and have consumed so much of our thoughts and emotions that they have become ultimate, then this is what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God accomplished it through the death and resurrection of his son. He seated his son in heaven and he's guarding that inheritance for you. And not only that, he's guarding you for that inheritance. That is what is ultimate. And no one can take that away because you didn't earn it by your own strength. We don't have to protect it by our own strength. King Jesus has got this. And so we can say about our present trials, whatever they are, they're just a little while, Peter says. Or as James says, just a light momentary affliction. And you see, now that he has set that, what he's going to remind us is that in this ultimate place that we have secured for us and are being kept for there's a new economy at work 
There's a new kingdom that Jesus has established, and there's a new economy in that kingdom. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And you see, there's a wordplay going on here between gracious and credit, because those words are often used interchangeably in the New Testament. And Peter's argument goes something like this. If you get punished unjustly, there's credit to you. But if you get punished because of your sin, there's no credit in the world to come. By contrast, if you suffer for doing good and endure, the Lord is putting credits into your account. Therefore, it's a gracious thing. In God's economy, when sojourners in exile suffer for being faithful at the hands of the government leaders and their worldly employees, it is a gracious thing because God, in his new economy, is using that to graciously fill up our account in the new heavens and new earth. Whatever you lose here will be gained in the age to come. So for a little while, while you're grieved, you may lose status. The agenda of this world may move further away from what you're comfortable with. We'll all find ourselves growing in our discomfort. It may lead the church into a time of suffering. But, oh, Peter says, this is a gracious thing. And it's going to be easy to argue here with Peter. That sounds so backwards. And to American ears, it does. Their system has given us a voice and a vote, but increasingly God's people are being pushed to the fringes. And our posture needs to be, Lord, you're going to use this so that if I suffer unjustly as I'm giving honor and submission to my authorities, if I suffer unjustly, it's a gracious thing, and there will be credits going into my account. You will be building those credits by allowing me to suffer. That is your grace at work. Because the cross didn't just create salvation. It created a kingdom which has a new economy. And God's gracious way of building his kingdom and the credit of his people in the new heavens and new earth is always to use the suffering of his church. Just as we saw in Exodus 1, where Pharaoh oppressed and God's people grew in might. Now, the last thing. You may be thinking, so what am I supposed to do? Just sit and take this. Verse 19. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's pray. Lord, we 
want to honor our leaders and pray for President Trump, Governor Lee, our own county mayor, Andy Ogles, Lord. We pray that you would give us hearts of obedience where necessary and honor at all times. Help us to subject ourselves to these men and to our legislature and laws for your glory's sake, Lord. We do pray that you would put men in these positions that would pursue righteousness and justice for all people. For you have given them the right to punish evil and promote good. And we would put, pray that you would put men in place who would bring that kind of rule to all the people in our country, state, and city. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for we have, where we have dishonored and slandered. We're thankful that your grace is sufficient for all of our sins, that your truth is the foundation that we build on and that the kingdom to come is our home. Help us, Lord, to speak truthfully and with honor. Lord, I pray Pray, Lord, for those who are struggling with fear and anxiety during this election cycle and the unrest that we're seeing in our world. Lord, help us by breaking in with the peace that is in Christ alone, and may he be our only source of hope and joy. And give us wisdom in our political interactions that we might speak truth to the world that we might do so with the salt of grace and honor. Help us to be wise as to when to speak and when not to. Help us to be bold and courageous when it is time to speak. For Lord, way, this is our cry. That the world would see in the people of Jesus a different way of doing life. May we follow his example. For he has secured for us what we could not gain and what we cannot lose. Lastly, our Lord, we pray the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.